The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. A church that he actually pastored at one time for at least a year and a half, and it was also a church that he started. So he was a church planter, and he planted this church, pretty much started it from scratch when he went into this pagan city called Corinth, just about 40 miles away from Athens, and evangelized, and God blessed, and there were people who believed in the gospel, and Paul began to assemble a church, train them. He pastored them for a year and a half, and then God called him on to do ministry elsewhere and several other opportunities to evangelize and plant other churches. And Paul's away now from this church that he planted and once pastored. And it's been maybe a year and a half or two years he's been away from the Corinthian church, and he's getting word from them. He's probably in Ephesus as he's hearing about the church at Corinth, and he's getting written correspondence from the Christians at Corinth. They're asking Paul questions. Well, what about this? Or we didn't cover this when you were here as our pastor. Or uh, a problem has come up. And what do you say about this? And another controversy. Or uh, can you clarify, Paul, for us? So they had written correspondence that was going back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians. So uh, part of his response is in this letter of Corinthians. He's answering specific questions that they raised. And actually, I believe today the topic of today is a question that they had. Uh, the Corinthians had actually maybe written correspondence to Paul inquiring very specifically about a very specific issue. Uh, Paul is also addressing uh, a problem in the Corinthian church in chapters 12 through 14, maybe because of things that he heard, because we do know that Paul had verbal communication from some people who were from Corinth visiting Paul, saying, hey, Paul, here's what's going on in Corinth. They need your help. They've got these questions. There's some problems. Uh, it's, it's really bad in some areas, and their reputation is uh, not looking good to the surrounding neighbors on various topics, and so we hear about that in Chapter 16, these three men from the church at Corinth that were friends of Paul who were bringing him word there. So uh, Paul is responding to questions the Corinthians had, but he's also responding to problems that he has heard about, and he needs to straighten them out, their behavior, but also sometimes it has to do with their theology. So uh, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're just going to look at the first six verses today. Follow along as I read the first six verses by the way, this, is a, this unit goes together, chapter 12, 13, and 14. When Paul wrote this letter, he didn't write numbers, number 12, verse 1. It was just a letter, like you would write to a friend or whoever. You don't write chapter, verse, and all that stuff. That was added hundreds of years later. So 12, 13, and 14 is like one long paragraph or topic that needs to stay together as a unit, 12, 13, and 14. So we'll look at the first six verses as he introduces this new unit or a problem in the church he tells them now concerning spirituals some translations say now concerning spiritual gifts brethren i do not want you to be unaware or ignorant you know that when you were pagans or unsaved you were led astray to the mute or dumb idols however and whenever you were led Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. We're going to stop there. I provided some notes or, or an outline for you if you want to follow along and use that. Today's sermon I called Confusion Over Spiritual Gifts because that's exactly what Paul's addressing. The Corinthians were confused about spiritual gifts. Probably some of them didn't know that they were confused, but as they were observed, it was clear that they were confused. They were abusing spiritual gifts, many of them, uh, several of them didn't even understand the purpose or nature of the gifts or what they were for. And there was a lot of crazy activity and behavior going on as they gathered together in the corporate worship time together. And as several were exercising their supposed spiritual gifts, they were creating problems, primarily because they were being self-centered and selfish with their spiritual gifts and the exercise of their spiritual gifts. And it just turned into pandemonium, totally chaotic and out of control. It was a huge Problem, not a small one. It was huge because it was in the corporate assembly. So there's a public component 
to it. People were visiting the congregation. There were visitors. There were even unbelievers visiting, watching this crazy, charismatic Christian behavior going on. It's like, what in the world? Paul addresses that in chapter 14. And it was a huge issue because we know it is because Paul gives so much time and attention to it. Three chapters. Chapter 12. Chapter 13. Chapter 14. This was probably one of the main problems Paul wanted to address in the church because it takes such a huge chunk of time of his letter. Confusion over spiritual gifts. So the topic for chapter 12, 13, and 14 is on spiritual gifts, clearly. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now concerning spirituals, literally in the Greek text it just says spirituals, spirituals, Spiritual people, spiritual gifts, spiritual things. It's the context clearly. It's spiritual gifts, the use of spiritual gifts that they had. And so some English translations legitimately put the word gift in there, like the NIV. That's okay, because that's what he's talking about. Now, concerning spiritual gifts. So that's what he's talking about for the next three chapters. Uh, Also, Paul, now concerning that phrase at the beginning of chapter 12, if you were paying attention and noticed, Paul's used this phrase a few times already in Corinthians. Now concerning, now concerning. Now It's just a very clear uh, marker that he's now changing subjects. He's making a transition. He did it in chapter 8, verse 1, when he said, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, after he was talking about singleness and marriage in chapter 7. And so, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, and so for three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, he talked about things sacrificed to idols and Christian liberty. Finished that topic. Then he talked about communion and a couple of other problems in chapter 11. And then now he's turning to a new subject, now concerning, and it's spiritual gifts for the next three chapters. He'll use that phrase again, now concerning, in chapter 16 when he's talking about the offering. He used that phrase, now concerning, when he introduced the topic of singleness in chapter 7 as well. So uh, very clearly Paul is transitioning to a new topic. So it is a new topic, but there is some continuity with the previous chapter because we pointed out. Earlier, the chapter 11, Paul introduces from chapter 11 pretty much for the rest of the book. But specifically from chapter 11 to chapter 14, Paul is talking about specific issues regarding the public corporate assembly of worship. Things that were going on when they gathered together at church. Problems in the church. Because prior to chapter 11, he was dealing with different issues that could have been personal issues or things you do at home or at your neighbor's house or at a relative's house. But now chapter 11 to 14 is things or problems going on when you gather and assemble at a church. Come on, church people. And so he talked about when they gathered together on a Sunday and some of the ladies were inappropriately prophesying with their head not covered. And uh, then he said, and and then when they were gathering together, some of them were abusing the Lord's table being selfish, pigging out, not being deferential to others and waiting on them, drinking too much of the sacramental wine to the point they're getting intoxicated and drunk at church, literally. That was in the public assembly. And so now it's a new topic, but it's still in the public assembly. It's when you gather together and you use your gifts publicly in the corporate assembly. Well, you guys got some major problems going on. It is, And it's regarding spiritual gifts and... Apparently, from the context, the problem was that some who had a spiritual gift of a public nature, uh, like speaking in tongues or prophecy, the speaking gifts, they were flaunting those. They were arrogant about it. They thought they were more spiritual than others who had spiritual gifts that weren't the public speaking gifts. They're kind of behind-the-scenes gifts, like the service gift, maybe. Like whoever sees uh, the person up doing sound. That, that is a very important, vital gift of service to the church. But these high-profile gifts where you actually get all the attention, speaking, teaching, preaching, prophesying, speaking in tongues, of a public nature, prophecy, those kind of things. And so they had a lot of public exposure, and as a result, uh, some of the people were becoming puffed up and overly proud and arrogant because of their gift, because they had the showy gifts. They were kind of like thinking they were the haves and the others were the have-nots. So they were becoming self-centered about it, proud about it, arrogant about it, looking down their nose on others in the church who had lesser showy gifts. And then they were abusing that gift and were totally out of control, doing it in ecstatic ways without proper decorum, proper protocol, proper restraint, not being done in keeping with biblical truth and biblical guidelines. It just became an all-out frenzied free-for-all at times in the worship service. It was embarrassing 
And it was embarrassing to the glory of God. And it was also embarrassing and a stumbling block to visitors, especially unbelievers who would come and watch this crazy, wild activity. And they're trying to figure out what in the world are these kooky Christians doing? This is scary. This is weird. That's literally what was going on. They were just totally out of control. In other words, to summarize it, the Corinthians problem was they were not doing things in the public assembly when they gathered for church decently and in order. And that's why Paul's summary statement to all these problems, starting in chapter 11, for when they gathered together for communion, uh, with the head covering things in public, how they use their spiritual gifts, uh, the nature of prophecy and how that is done, he summarizes everything in chapter 14, verse 40, by saying this. But all things must be done properly or decently or the right way, like I said, with the proper reverent decorum. And also in an orderly manner. You can't just do whatever you want. It's not anything goes because I'm being moved by the guitar and the spirit. There's a proper order and protocol here. It was very specific, very detailed, not overly burdensome. This has always been true of God and his people. The Old Testament was no exception where God gave all these laws and telling Moses and Aaron and the priests, when you conduct public worship and sacrifice in the temple, in the tabernacle, here are the things you need to abide by. Here's proper decorum. Here's proper protocol. It needs to be done decently and in order as you revere God, promote his glory in deference, service, for others. So that was true in the Old Testament sacrificial worship, public worship assembly system as well. Decently and in order. And that hasn't changed with the time. That hasn't changed with the church. So that's the issue at hand. Now, uh, I want you to look back at 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians, they had all kinds of problems with spiritual gifts in the public assembly, but one of the arguments Paul doesn't make, he doesn't say, well, you don't even have that spiritual gift. He doesn't say that. They do have spiritual gifts. God has endowed the Corinthian believers with spiritual gifts probably more than any other local church that we know of based on reading the New Testament. And Paul says that up front, 1 Corinthians 1, just by way of reminder, uh, Paul introduces himself as he's writing to the church of God in Corinth to those, by the way, we have been going through Corinthians, and it's chapter after chapter with Paul, the pastor, and the apostle, kind of wagging his finger at the Corinthians the entire letter. Now, you're, you're doing this wrong. Now stop it. And you're doing this wrong. Now stop it. And you're doing this wrong. And, and then it gets pretty harsh sometimes, like in chapter 4. You are being arrogant. And so he's shaking his finger, man. You need to figure, and, But he starts out the letter by commending them. Because they were legitimate, bona fide, born-again Christians. At least the majority of them. And so the commendation comes early on. He said, to the, I'm writing this letter to the church of God at Corinth. To those, uh, verse 2, he says, To the ones who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, you have been saved and set apart by Almighty God. You've been set apart from your pagan, unbelieving culture there in Corinth. You are true believers. Been sanctified, set apart. Saints, you're holy ones. Not in terms of their behavior, but in terms of their status before Almighty God. Positionally, legally speaking, they were saints. They were holy. They didn't have to die and wait for a hundred years and then be canonized as a saint. They were saints when they got saved. Holy ones. So they've been sanctified, set apart. They're holy ones in Jesus. They've also been called by Jesus, by calling with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you in the name of God our Father. I thank Get this, he's even thankful for the Corinthians, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. That's good to know because, you know, they grieved Paul's soul because of their um, many problems, but also because of their lousy testimony to the onlooking, unbelieving culture around them and because the intensity of some of their divisiveness that grieved his soul. Nevertheless, the apostle Paul bequeathed the gospel to them and they became his children in the faith and as a result he's got this unconditional spiritual attachment as their spiritual father he loves them like a dad loves his children and that comes out in verse 4 i thank my god always concerning you for the grace of god which was given to you You believe the gospel praise god that in everything you were enriched in jesus in all speech and all knowledge. Those are references to spiritual gifts specifically. God gave you, God richly blessed you with the gift of speech. 
spiritual gifts that had to do with speaking, like tongues, prophecy, interpreting tongues, and also knowledge. The word of knowledge he's going to refer to later in chapter 12 and 14. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that uh, you aren't, here it is, you are not lacking in any gift. You are not lacking in any charismata. Charismata is the Greek word for gift here. It's a very specific word. It is a specific spiritual gift that God the Father gives through the Spirit to anyone who is born again. It is given by God in his initiative. It is given at his discretion. He chooses which gift he's giving to the believer. He gives it to them the moment they get saved. And it's called charismata. That's where we get the word charismatic. Charismatic, by the way, is not a bad or dirty word. It means grace, the gift of grace. Charismatic is a good word. Am I, charisma- am I a charismatic pastor? Absolutely, amen. See, I'm raising my hands. Oops. Am I a char- are we the charismatic church? I hope so, in the biblical sense. As a matter of fact, our church is called Grace Bible Fellowship. What's grace? Grace is charis from charismata, the gift of grace from God. That's what a charismatic is. Someone who's been given a gift by God to promote his glory and edify other saints primarily. So that you, you Corinthians are not lacking in any gift, man. You got all the gifts and even list them in chapter 12 through 14. He doesn't do that with any other church, by the way. Charismata. So they definitely had the spiritual gifts. So that's not even in question. It's how they were understanding them and how they were using them. That is the issue. Let's go back to chapter 12. And I broke this up just into three points to help us uh, simplify it and work through the text. Uh, confusion over spiritual gifts. How apropos. Confusion over spiritual gifts. Do you know every once in a while I hear a Bible critic or an atheist agnostic or somebody you know, bashing on Christianity and say, oh, they believe in that Bible. It's 2,000 plus years old. It's irrelevant. How can something from 2,000 years ago be relevant to what's going on today? I'm thinking we are reading about problems in a local Christian church regarding division and issues that were arising from the use of spiritual gifts. You talk about relevance. The problem over spiritual gifts has been the main divisive and pertinent issue that the church has been confronted with in the last 40 plus years, not just in America, but around the world. That's relevance. Spiritual gifts. There, there is no, I can't think of any other topic that has been more uh, divisive for the church of Jesus Christ in the last almost 50 years. I, I remember in the 80s and 90s, you couldn't even talk about it without stepping on somebody's toes or starting a fight. It's like, man, we can't even talk about these issues. seems like the dust is kind of settled in some quarters, but it's still a very sensitive topic. It can be a very divisive topic. It is a very confused and complex issue. It is not just a phenomenon locally. It is worldwide. So... We're going to benefit greatly from this text. And also, as we go through chapter 12, 13, and 14, we are going to take our time, too. We're going to take our time. This church has been around Grace Bible Fellowship. Charismata Bible Fellowship has been around eight years. And time after time, time after time, time after time, issues and questions regarding the spiritual gifts come up. It comes up all the time. All the time. And so we're going to exhaust chapter 12, 13, and 14. We are going to be driven by the text, not an agenda. We're going to be driven by the text, not a denominational preference. We're going to be driven by the text, just so you know, that's my approach. What does the Bible say from the original language as God gave it? And some other disclaimers. Um, I'm not going to say everything you want me to say this morning. I just It's impossible. I have about four hours of information to dump on you just on verses 1 through 6. And today I'm only going to go for two hours. So I'm going to be, wait, why are you laughing? So I'm, I'm going to get cut short. Um, so don't come up and tell me, well, you didn't say. You didn't say this. Well, I know I didn't say because I've got ten pages of notes I didn't even get to. Um, also be patient in that I think a lot of your questions are going to be answered by the time we get to the end of chapter 14. So you might be asking some premature questions. I mean, you feel free to ask me questions. That's fine. You can email me, talk to me. That's, that's great. We need to do that. Uh, but I'm just warning you that I might say, well, we're going to get to that in chapter 13, verse 8, or we're going to get to that in chapter 14, verse 14, and that's about seven months from now. Can you wait? No. Okay. Then I'll give you a book to read by somebody or whatever. So um, that's kind of how it goes. Also, I think in the midst of this, we're going to have to stop, and we did this with James when we got to that controversial chapter 2, and we took some time to do some Q&A on the spot. 
uh, we're going to probably have to do some Q&A, I think, publicly for us while we're doing this. And that's always a, a very edifying time as we're going through. Um, so anyway, I think that's the end of my disclaimers. So with that, let's go ahead and look at our three points. Uh, first, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. Professor McManus has a pop quiz today. Uh, this is my diagnostic quiz. Diagnostic is to diagnose where you're thinking, your theology, your background, your upbringing is regarding spiritual gifts. Because I guarantee you, we are all over the map this morning. With 200 plus people in here, there are some people who grew up, didn't grow up in the church and they don't have a clue what spiritual gifts are. Like me, for 19 years, I didn't know what spiritual gifts were. Then I got saved and then there's all these Christians that I knew were fighting about it. I'm like, what are they fighting about? Um, so some of you might be ignorant regarding it and the controversy. Some of you may have grown up uh, Pentecostal or a charismatic church. You have a particular bent or heritage or legacy about you. Some of you may currently still be a part of those uh, fellowships. Uh, some of you may have grown up in Reformed churches, which has a very different bent or view. Some of you may have grown up. So anyway, just the point is you've got all kinds of, we're just bringing a lot of baggage here to this conversation. So uh, I am fully aware of that. But we just need to be patient, gracious towards one another. And again, have God be our teacher. The Holy Spirit is our main teacher. We need to be teachable. We need to be patient. And we need to see what the text says. Not, well, this pastor said, and that pastor said, and mm, I'm not really interested. The only pastor I'm interested in is the pastor Paul, as he was moved by the Spirit of God. And hopefully we can discover what that meaning was. That's going to help us more than anything else. But they were extremely confused, the Corinthians were, and our church in the world today is extremely confused on this issue. So I think we're going to, God is going to bring a lot of clarity to our thinking corporately as a local church. So we praise God for that. So here's the three points. I'm going to give you the three points up front, uh, and then we'll go back and go through each one. So point number one is verses one and two, and that is uh, the problem with gifts. One of the problems was, reverting back to pagan days. Probably part of some of the problem was they were bringing some baggage from their pagan experiences into their Christian worldview and compromising the way they should be practicing their spiritual gifts. Paul alludes to that. Actually, he doesn't allude to it. He directly says that in verse 2. Number two, the prerequisite for spiritual gifts. There is a prerequisite. There are things that need to come before before you use and exercise your spiritual gifts beliefs you need to have in place to restrain, guide how you exercise your spiritual gifts. So one of the prerequisites for gifts is the believer is to be responsible. You need to own your gift. You uh, exercise your You're not a passive observer when you're using your gift. You are primarily responsible. It's your will that's being enacted when you exercise your gift. And then number three, the power for the gifts. Uh, the, the, the Corinthians apparently were confused about this. They, they gave an overemphasis to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, though this, the Holy Spirit, the that. The, you know, that's relevant today. There are some churches that do the same thing, some Christians. Holy Spirit, this, Holy Spirit, that, Holy Spirit, this, Holy Spirit, that, Holy Spirit. It's like, well, when are you going to talk about Jesus? Because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity that the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit would glorify Christ and exalt his name. Holy Spirit's not there to exalt himself. So Jesus is preeminent in terms of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they were lopsided in that. They're just talking about Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in the text as well. And Paul has to balance their thinking, saying, no, it's not just about the Holy Spirit. It's the almighty triune God that's involved here when it comes to spiritual gifts. So the power of the gifts is the Trinity gives the gifts, not just the Holy Spirit. So that's a great plumb line for us to keep in mind as a principle today to gauge our thinking. So let's go back to verses uh, 1 and 2, and that's the problem with gifts. Oh, no, sorry. I keep, I, you're almost gave away and not had the quiz. We've got to have the quiz. Here's the quiz. The, uh, it's a true and false quiz. There are questions 1 through 10. I'm going to go rather quickly, and you just, in your own mind, you don't have to write the question down. Just say true or false, and then we'll grade the quiz after. And then you give yourself a score, and if you get a B or above, you can have fellowship meal today. See, why are you laughing again? See or below remedial training after the service in the closet over here with me. And then if there's food left, I'll send you over. I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, here we go. True and false. 
These, and these all have to do with spiritual gifts, and they all have to do with very specific issues that are going to be in chapter 12, 13, and 14. Uh, these are not trick questions. Maybe you've never heard of the issue, or maybe you think I'm trying to, I'm not trying to trick anybody. These flow right out of the text. By the way, I determine the correct answer when I'm giving the answers. And it, it's not my opinion. I think it comes right out of the Bible. I tried to make these kind of no-brainers. So here we go. True or false? Number one, all Christians should speak in tongues. True or false? And don't say the answer out loud. Shame on you. Number two, it's okay for women to speak, teach, and preach in the public church service, and they can do anything that a guy can do. True or false? Number three, believers in the Old Testament spoke in tongues. Believers in the Old Testament spoke in tongues. True or false? Number four, Jesus spoke in tongues. Number five, Paul did not speak in tongues. Number six, spiritual gifts were given to all Old Testament believers. Number seven, prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is proclaiming and explaining God's word. Definition of prophecy. Number eight, there are apostles today on planet Earth. Number nine, speaking in tongues is the sign or the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. Number 10, speaking in tongues in the New Testament was not a known, intelligible human language of the day, but rather it was an unintelligible kind of babble or gibberish. Okay, here are the answers. All the answers were false. Okay? Oh, somebody got 100%. Yippee! But anyway, we're going to talk about all of these, and they will flow right out of the text. A couple I wanted to highlight. Um, oh, I thought this one was interesting. Number nine, speaking in tongues is the sign or the evidence of being filled with the Spirit. That is not true. That's a prominent doctrine, though, in teaching. You know what the sign of being filled with the Spirit is? It's not speaking. It's obedience. <laughs> There's a big difference. That's the sign especially according to Paul in Galatians 5 and the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, with that, let's go ahead and move on to our outline and see how far we get. Uh, looking at the problem with the spiritual gifts and that these Corinthians got saved and some of them maybe were bringing back uh, some of their old habits of behavior. And they got saved from all kinds of different views. Paganism in the Greek culture and Roman culture, there were zillions of kinds of religions and even a zillion more kinds of gods and uh, different kinds of practices associated with that. Most of it was around idols, that they worshipped, worshipped all these gods through actual images and rocks and sticks and supposed uh, gods that were incarnated in things made with the hands like uh, idols. So they worshipped and prayed to these idols. Now, an idol is nothing in and of itself, but Paul and the New Testament clearly say that many of these idols behind the scenes, spiritually speaking, in a false religion, there were demons involved. So when somebody was in a false religion praying to an idol, they were literally praying to Satan and his demons, even though the practitioner didn't realize that. They were totally uh, naive and ignorant to that. So they're praying to uh, Zeus and saying they think they're praying to this guy named Zeus. Well, actually, they weren't. They're were actually praying to one of Satan's demons or henchmen. Really, this was they were involving themselves in demonic activity. Kind of like a, using a Ouija board. It's well, it's there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's sold in the toy section. It's sold in Toys R Us. No, Ouija board comes right out of the occult, and in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. But practicing it, using it, opening yourself up to it, uh, to a mystical, spiritual, religious experience, you will become vulnerable, especially if you're not a Christian, to the entire invisible demonic world. We know that for a fact. There are demons behind the scenes in the heavenlies. Don't toy with it. Oops. Oh, yes. Anyway. So what was the problem? Uh, going back to their... And, by, and some of these religions uh, were very mystical. Uh, I mean, that's even true today because some of these pagan religions are still around, remnants of it in various pagan religions, whether it's Hinduism or worshiping dead ancestors or idols. And there are testimonies uh, time and time again of people who got saved out of those religions and have testified. I, I know people like this who said, uh, when I was in this religion and worshiped these idols and worshiped these false gods, I had real, out-of-body, mystical 
experiences, psychedelic experiences, similar to when I used to be on acid or drug, really, LSD. But I wasn't. I was involved in a religion. Well, wow, I believe it, and that's real, and that has to do with the demon world. That is dangerous. And a lot of times it was based on spontaneity and seeking a mystical experience is what they were trying to capture. They weren't being led by biblical truth in their mind. And what they didn't realize is that passively they weren't leading anything. They were being led by Satan, led by Satan, led by Satan, almost just puppets unknowingly. And that's why Paul uses that verb two times. When you were a pagan, you were led by, led by, led by. Basically, Satan himself as you were an idol worshiper. You were not even in control. So they were bringing stuff from the past and paganism probably into the Christian religion and letting it either trickle out unknowingly, unwittingly, or even invoking or uh, certain practices and mixing it with their new Christian religion and their supposed spiritual gift that they had. And one of the common uh, gifts, speaking in tongues is, was a biblical legitimate gift that God gave. Now, but in pagan religions, and it's even true to this day, in pagan religions way back in history, many pagan religions had ecstatic experiences where the religious practitioner would speak in tongues. They would mumble. And they were, weren't even conscious of what they were saying or doing. And they're literally mumbling, supposedly, as they are led by their God or some spiritual being or maybe even a demon. And they're mumbling, and it was known as speaking in tongues. That was real, active in life, in the culture of Rome and in Greek where the Corinthians were and got saved. So... Uh, it is very likely that some of these Corinthians who got saved used to practice a demonic, false religion, worshiping idols, and one of the components of it was that they would speak in some ecstatic, frenzied kind of language known as tongues. So that when they got the Christian gift, they were confusing the two. So that's one of the problems that Paul's trying to address. And by the way, speaking in tongues, I mean, there's a lot of spiritual gifts. Paul lists many, more than 15, I think, he mentions. There could be more than that. They didn't have a problem with all of the spiritual gifts. The Corinthians did not have a problem, and they weren't overdoing it, and they weren't overkill on the gift of giving. Or the gift of faith, for all we know. Or the, the gift of service towards others. We know for a fact they weren't doing a good job on that one. But it was pretty much limited to two because it dominates the entire three chapters, and that is speaking in tongues and prophecy. They were abusing that, misusing it. Uh, they were embarrassing. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul mentions speaking in tongues 21 times, and he doesn't mention it anywhere else in his other 12 epistles. Just in these three chapters alone. He mentions prophecy 20 times in 12 through 14. So the issue was, their misuse, abuse, misunderstanding of speaking in tongues and prophecy. And this is the speaking showy gifts. That was the problem. Uh, the Corinthians just seemed to have this chronic disease of a radical individualism no matter what they did, whether uh, the Lord's table and they're just worried about feeding their face or exercising their liberties in the gray areas of the Christian life. And it was all about me and my rights and my freedoms. We saw that in 8 through 10. And now it's with the spiritual gifts. Me, 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 my spiritual gift. What edifies me and satisfies me. And I get the glory. We're going to see that as we go through. That was the problem. Uh, so going back, looking at verse, summarizing verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the spirituals or spiritual gifts, brethren, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be knowledgeable. So here was the problem. What was part of the problem of the Corinthians exercising the gifts the wrong way is they were ignorant. They didn't have full revelation. They needed some more revelation from Paul or at least a reminder. Maybe a buttress their theology a little bit or practically telling them how to do it the right way with proper protocol. They were being ignorant. I need to give you more information. I don't want you to be ignorant. And this is important because in their previous religion, they could be ignorant because the way they practiced religion wasn't based on the content of truth. You didn't have to study assiduously and master what the text says so that you could implement your religious practice the proper way. It was all about experience. It was all spontaneous. It wasn't, it wasn't driven by truth or content. That's why Christianity is so radically different from all the other religions of the world. The practice of Christianity is driven and dictated by objective truth that we need to be exposed to, we need to study, we need it explained, we need to comprehend it, and then we need to apply it. 
That's why God, by the way, in the audience of the congregation, in the audience of the congregation, when the church gathers, who is the audience? According to the Bible, the audience is Almighty God. He is the audience. He's the one that receives our worship. He is the one that is to be promoted in His glory. It is all about Him. He is the audience. It's, it's amazing how many, especially this, they start pumping out in the 1970s, these church growth books, and they emphasize the audience is the unbeliever in your midst. And you do everything, and everything is dictated by the, the, the sensitive Unbeliever in your midst, in the corporate assembly, that is totally the opposite of what the Bible says. When the saints gather together, the audience is God. And that's why in John chapter 4, Jesus said, in talking about God the Father, God is spirit, and we must worship in spirit through the Holy Spirit, but also in truth, objective, biblical truth. And it says, for the Father seeks, the seeker is the Father. Not an unbeliever. The Father seeks these kinds of worshipers. God is the audience. Huge, important point. So apparently the Corinthians forgot about that, and Paul addresses that in our third point today. So we'll get to that. Oh, so now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. I'm going to give you more information. I want to give you a reminder, verse 2, for you know, you know that when you were pagans, when you were not saved, before you were Christian, you were led astray, led astray. He used the verb two times in a row at the end of the sentence being emphatic. You were led astray in your old religion. You were led astray. You were duped. You were blinded. You were ignorant. You were passive. You were being dragged along. That is the terminology he uses in the second verb, dragged along. Uh, like a criminal to execution, or dragged along like a sacrifice to the sacrificial altar. That's what the word means. You were dragged along in your former previous religion. It's almost like you were victimized and ignorantly so. You were blinded and deceived, and that's how you behaved. And a lot of times that behavior came out in this spontaneous, erratic, gross kind of whacked-out behavior. Here's one example. If you got your Bible, you can go to Ephesians 2, and Paul hints at it. Uh, this would be the same kind of audience because the Ephesian culture was also a Greek and Roman pagan culture, and it wasn't far away from where Corinth was. And the majority of the people that got saved there had the same background as those in Corinth, and Paul reminds them what they used to be like before they got saved in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, don't you remember Gentile pagan believers that, or Gentile believers that before you got saved you were pagans? in your culture, and here's what you were like. Here was your bio before you got saved. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were spiritually dead, even though you practice spiritual things in your false religion. And here's what the, the essence of your religion was like, in which you formerly walked. You were dead, but you walked. Isn't that amazing? Why were they walking? Because Satan was dragging them along, or his demons, in which you formerly walked according, here it is, according to the course of this world according to the, dictated by the pattern of Satan himself in this fallen world. That's how you lived out your false religion. According to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan himself. It was demonic. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them whom uh, to all formerly lived in the lusts of their flesh, indul indulging the desires of the flesh, here it is, and of the mind. Weren't, they weren't being driven by truth in the mind. They were being driven by their lusts in their mind. So that's a good parallel passage to verse 2. You know that when you were not saved, you were led astray to mute idols, to worship mute idols, dead idols, powerless idols, however you were led. So Paul's caution, you know what? You've got to put the past behind you. Don't drag any of that stuff into Christianity and your practice with Jesus Christ. You're dealing with someone who is totally different, the triune holy God of the universe. And you're not a passive uh, recipient in your religion. When it comes to spiritual gifts, you are active. You are in control of your gift. I'm in control of my gift. I can use it if I want. I can refrain from using it and be disobedient. I can use it the wrong way if I want. That's his point. So that's why I said, uh, leads us to our next point. Let's look at verse 2. So they had all kinds of crazy, ecstatic, uh, spontaneous, mystical, loud, raucous behavior going on when they gathered. And they're Excuse was, well, we're just in the Spirit. We're just using our spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gave us. So Paul has to correct that and say, no, you're not. You're out of control. You're, you're acting like wild, crazy pagans. Stop doing that. Reign in your behavior. Reign it in in accordance with biblical truth. 
And so here's the truth that they need to rein it in. Here's a litmus test for reining in this out-of-control behavior, verse 3, and that is there was a prerequisite. Therefore, I make known to you, I don't want you to be ignorant anymore. One of the things that you need to know about, uh, and this is kind of just up front. By the way, we're going to go through 12, 13, and 14, and there are probably 10-plus problems that the Corinthians specifically had regarding their use of spiritual gifts. But there was one dominant one that was so whacked out and out of control and unbelievable that Paul just had to address it up front. It was so bad. It was kind of like uh, at communion, somebody getting drunk. I mean, you would think that's kind of a no-brainer. When you go to church to worship God and you have communion remembering Jesus' death and resurrection for you as a pathetic, lowly sinner giving him the glory with fellow believers, what, oh, I forgot to say, don't get drunk. But he had to say that. And so now this is kind of one of those shocking things that apparently somebody in the Corinthian assembly was actually doing this in verse 3. What were they doing? Therefore I make known to you that no one, no Christian who is speaking by the true Holy Spirit of God in the public assembly at churches you gather together using your spiritual gifts says the following, Jesus is accursed. Jesus is anathema. Damned be Jesus. That is unbelievable. But somebody was doing that in the Corinthian church. You know what their justification was? Or the music started playing and the tambourines start shaking and they're jumping up and they're doing their speaking in tongues and all that and the prophetic gifts and they're hooting and hollering and it's just this crazy frenzy and then someone gets up and says, Thus saith the Lord, I I got a, a word from the Lord and literally got up and said, Jesus be accursed, anathema. Really? That, that's utter blasphemy. And Paul says, uh, a Christian doesn't say that. Whoever said it is not a Christian. And apparently the Corinthians tolerate it. As a matter of fact, they probably even got a few amens in the congregation. And it's unthinkable. How could this be? Well, here's how it could be. Anathema is a Hebrew word. It's, it's in, from the Old Testament. It comes right out of Deuteronomy. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Anathema is the one who hangs on a tree. could very well be that there were some weeds, some false teachers that crept up in this church at Corinth like Paul promised would happen. They became prominent. They were eloquent. They were influential. They feigned having this, the gift of prophecy. They had an audience, got up and said, Jesus, be a curse. Could have been uh, a Jew who says they were now Christian and they were from a Hebrew Old Testament orientation and they knew Deuteronomy, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And this Jesus fellow that I've never met was hanged on a tree. My Old Testament says, accursed is that man. And maybe they wanted to say that the Jesus part of him was accursed. We'll just keep the spiritual part, the component, the Christ in the Jesus. And they were denying maybe the humanity of Jesus as the God-man. Maybe they wanted to overemphasize the divine side of Jesus. Today, one of the main heresies of Christology in our modern day is those people who relentlessly and continually try to undermine the deity of Christ, the deity of Christ. Here's something interesting. In the early church, the first Christological heresy was always undermining the humanity of Christ. Isn't that ironic? It was for the first two to three centuries. Even before the apostles were dead. So, I don't know how this happened, but that's what happened. Somebody in the congregation, in the name of using their spiritual gifts and being prophetic, and in the moment, Jesus, anathema, Jesus be damned, Jesus be... And Paul says, uh, no, no, that is so wrong. That means to cease and desist. No one can do that who is a Christian. And on the other hand, to balance that, the antithesis of that, the converse of that truth is this. Here's how a Christian should speak. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And what, what Paul means here is that the very essence, if you could distill it down to the, the simplest belief, the most distilled specific creed of every true born-again Christian, and you could put it down and package it in less than a sentence, it is this great truth. Jesus is Lord. Now, can I get an amen? Jesus is Lord. That distinguishes Christianity from every other religion on planet Earth and in the history of the world. And it flew in the face of what the Greeks believed in Paul's day and, and the Romans as well, because Caesar was Lord. And they were under his jurisdiction. Jesus is Lord, 
could end up putting you to death. That's from the Greek Gentile perspective. He is the sovereign one. He is the only Lord. There aren't multiple lords. There aren't multiple gods. This is a monotheistic statement of allegiance. Jesus is Lord. He is the only one who is Lord. He is totally sovereign. He is omnipotent. I am his subject. And my allegiance is only to him. That's from the Greek point of view. Also, from the Jewish point of view, to say Lord, kurios, the Greek word, that's actually a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, Yahweh. Yeah, wow. Yahweh was the very personal, intimate name of Almighty God. That was his personal name. My name is Yahweh. That was the triune God in the Old Testament. His name was Yahweh. And here Paul is saying, the essence of being a Christian is believing that Jesus is Yahweh. And you are committed to him. He saved you. You worship him. He rules your life. You bow the knee to him. And he is God. Jesus is God. He is the only God. He's part of the triune God. That's what that means. Jesus is Lord. And so Paul's saying, this is pretty simple. We're going to start right there. And if you've got people in your congregations saying or defying that Jesus is Lord, they're not Christians. You've got people saying Jesus is a curse. They are not believers. Get them out. Shut them up. As he says in Titus. And then he'll go on and deal with those other issues and problems. And then again, they were doing this in the name of the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Holy Spirit led me to say that. You mean the Holy Spirit can supposedly lead supposed evangelical Christians and pastors and teachers to supposedly say horrifically contrary biblical things from the pulpit in, um, in congregations? Absolutely, it happens. This, this horrifying to this degree? Yes. This horrifying to this degree. As I was reminded uh, about a month and a half ago when I was with our staff here at church and one of the brothers showed us a, vi- a video, YouTube video, of a very well-known popular pastor, a pastor that I actually used to listen to when I first got saved, still around, and gets up to his congregation and he says, let me tell you what the God, there's a lot of ignorance in Christianity, a lot, of, a lot of ignorance. We need to get back to the true gospel. Here's what the true gospel is. The true gospel that we're supposed to be preaching and the only gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. But the majority of Christianity has it wrong. They have been misled. They have been deceived. They've been deceived by Satan. And they're going around saying the following is the gospel, which is wrong. These Christians are deceived and misled by Satan. Satan would have us Christians believe that the gospel is about Jesus' death and his resurrection. Can you believe that? That is satanic to the core. And... I was in utter disbelief when I heard that, thinking, man, I used to actually like this guy, listen to this guy, follow this guy 25 years ago. What's even scarier is they video the audience, and there's actually people there saying amen and shaking their head. That's about the same as this. Jesus be accursed. So it's relevant to our day and age. We need to be driven by truth, not emotion, not experience. So that's the prerequisite. We worship in truth through the Spirit. Let's go on to the third point. The power. Uh, the Corinthians misunderstood the power of who energized their spiritual gifts. Probably some of them thought that it was their own power. That's clear. Look what I can do. Look at me. Look at this showy miracle I can do. Me, me, me. And the other wrong emphasis was just, it's all from the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, they, according to 12 verse 1, it says, Now concerning spirituals, uh, just about every commentator that I read believes. Here's another example of the Apostle Paul quoting from the Corinthian letter that came to him, where they asked him a question, and then he quoted what they said, and then corrected what they said. He did that in 1 Corinthians 7. So Paul's probably quoting what they said. Their question was, Paul, tell us about the spirituals, the spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit gifts. Now, the word they use in chapter 12, verse 1, is for spirituals, it refers to spiritual gifts. The word is pneumatica, pneuma, pneuma. It's got a P in Greek, pneuma, pneuma. And then in English, it's pneuma, silent P, pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, or pneumonia a sickness you have in the lungs of your problem with breathing with breath because that's what pneuma means it means breath 
to breathe. That's what the Holy Spirit is called. We refer to him as pneuma because he's like the breath. He's like the wind because that's what Jesus said in John 3. And also because the Spirit is invisible like breath and wind. And the Holy Spirit does active things like the breath and wind. And that's why he's called pneuma. And so that, so they use that moniker or that word to describe what a spiritual gift it is. First and foremost, from the invisible, powerful, holy, mystical Holy Spirit. Pneuma, pneuma, pneuma. That's what, that's what they wanted to isolate spiritual gifts to by that word. And Paul's just kind of like, you know what? Talking about the pneumas, it's not just pneuma. It's not just about the Holy Spirit. And that takes us to, and this is where Paul gives them balance regarding spiritual giftedness point number three the power of the gifts doesn't just come from the holy spirit it's the trinity the trinity gives the gifts they need to be straightened out on that and he does it in verse four verse five and verse six. First thing he does to balance their thinking is paul says now regarding the numas numa 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 uh paul said i'm not even going to call them numas i'm going to give these spiritual gifts different names so look at verse four now there are varieties of gifts okay now he's referring to spiritual gifts the same thing they're talking about in verse 1, but he doesn't call them pneuma. He uses a different word. He says, now regarding the charismata, which he used in chapter 1, charismata, he used a different word. That emphasizes, that comes from, remember, grace. Grace. Grace is not something we can conjure up. We can't earn grace. We don't deserve grace. God initiates grace. Grace is all from God. Boy, what a sobering reminder for them to balance their thinking. When it comes to spiritual gifts, first and foremost, you need to remember that it was a gift from God that he gave to you at his discretion that you didn't earn, that you didn't deserve. Same with me. Every Christian. It is a charismata. It's a supernatural gift from God, graciously given to us. It's all about him and his grace. So that is a great reminder. So he doesn't even call it a pneuma. It's a charismata. It's a gift. And he says, yeah, and you're right. It was given by the Spirit. True. You got that right. So spiritual gifts, the pneuma, the charismata, they are given by the Holy Spirit. But I need to balance your thinking because it's not just about spirit, 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 which the Spirit is mentioned about 11 times in the first 13 verses. He needs to balance and straighten out their thinking. It's about the Trinity, not just about the Spirit. So in verse 5, he makes a parallel statement. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. So now he uses a different synonym for spiritual gift. He doesn't say pneuma, Holy Spirit driven. He says ministries, which is the Greek word diakonia. Ooh, diakonos, servant, deacon, wow, a service. You know what that inherently speaks of serving others, isn't it? It's not about self-edification. So Paul calls spiritual gifts, he calls them ministries, or services in verse 5. They, they needed that reminder too. It is a gift from God that you didn't earn or deserve that graciously came from him and you're a steward of it. And also that gift that he gave you by the Spirit is for solely serving others, not to edify self. He's going to say that in chapter 14. If you are using your spiritual gift to pump yourself up, to edify yourself, to help you feel better, it's all about you, 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 and you do it in secret, in private, with nobody else around you being edified, you're misusing your spiritual gift. He says that categorically in chapter 14, and this word emphasizes that. It is a gift of ministry and service to others. That's being like Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give as a ransom for others. It is totally other-oriented. And that's where the Corinthians got it wrong. That's huge. Third. Oh, and then he says, and by the way, the spiritual gifts don't just come from the Holy Spirit because at the end of verse 5 he says, these spiritual gifts called services come from the same Lord. Paul is talking, he's referring to Jesus Christ. He just said Jesus is Lord. Jesus is kurios. So the gifts come from the Holy Spirit, but the gifts also come from Jesus Christ. Corinthians, remember that he says that explicitly in Ephesians 4. Jesus is the one who doled out the spiritual gifts to the church. So the Holy Spirit is the giver of the gifts. The Lord Jesus is the giver of the gifts. And to, and to balance out their thinking, verse 6, he gets who's missing. You got the, the Spirit, the Son, and now the Father. And he's actually in ascending order because that's the way it should go. Yeah, we do revere and are blessed by the Spirit of God, but the Holy Spirit exists. To exalt and point to Jesus. And Jesus said himself, I have come to glorify the Father. So that's the ascension he's taking out. Let's get our focus and priority right in worship of how we view Almighty God. And then he he uses this third word in verse 6. There are varieties of effects. So he uses a third different word for spiritual gifts that is not pneuma. Energeo. 
in their in their energy and and that's where the english word energy comes from energy is power and it's power that is not our own and that's exactly his point of emphasis here the inner ghetto the inner ghetto the power that you use to use your gift doesn't come from you it's not inherent it's not innate it's not from within it's not conjured up by human willpower your spiritual gift is energized by almighty god the father energeo not you and that's one of the problems they had look what i'm doing look at how powerful i am look what i can do look what i can say he says you know what your spiritual gift is the the fact that you can even do it is dependent upon the fact that God is already doing it in you through his energeo. It's the word used here. Think of Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Hey, Christian, work out your salvation. Work at it. Oh, by the way, as you're working out, I need to remind you. Verse 13, or the next verse. God is the one already working in you that makes it possible, and he uses the word energeo. Work out your salvation. Oh, by the way, God's already working in you. He's the one that makes it possible. He says that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. He says it again in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. He says it in Galatians chapter 3, on and on, all these verses where he reminds them, oh, do this, and by the way, God is the one who's doing that already in you. The energeo comes from God, God the Father. So energeo, the emphasis, it is a work of Almighty God. So everything about it is kind of sobering and shocking for the Corinthians. like, wow, oh, okay, so this gift, it, it was graciously given to me, and I, I didn't deserve it or earn it. Oh, wow, what a bummer. And, oh, you mean I'm supposed to use my gift to serve others? Well, I don't like that person. I have to be like Jesus? Really? And wash their dirty, smelly, stinky feet? Even a betrayer? And the power isn't mine? It's from God? Yeah. You mean Paul's kind of at times treats them like little immature children? Well, yeah. He did earlier in chapter 5. He said, you know, when I get there, I'm going to have to give you a spanking for your childish, immature thinking. And they were being immature here as well. So this is great balance. And this is totally relevant to today's issue and confusion regarding spiritual gifts because in the Pentecostal charismatic arena, not all the time, but in some pockets of that kind of Christianity where the spiritual gifts are prominent and they are showcased as the most important thing in the world, if you listen carefully and if you read carefully, you will see that what is being exalted usually is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit this, the Holy Spirit that, the Holy Spirit. You're like, wow, I I haven't heard anything about the Father or Jesus in a long time. And that should take us right back to the filter of Scripture and that beautiful balance that Paul gives, that he knows we needed this, this attention. So there are just amazing practical applications for us as Paul goes through this, talking to people from 2,000 years ago. Let me summarize just three main points uh, based on verses 1 through 6 that we can take away from this to apply to our own life. The first one under verses 1 and 2, is that the main truth that we can take away from what Paul said there is that Christians are susceptible to being confused about spiritual gifts. Simple point, but we forget that. Christians are susceptible. It's not that the charismatics are susceptible about... No. Christians are susceptible. I I have heard anti-charismatic people, Christians, say that the Apostle Paul did not speak in tongues. Or the, 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 the gift of speaking in tongues wasn't even a legitimate gift. And I'm like, what? It's right in the Bible. Of course it was. It's in chapter 12, 14. So we're all susceptible to being confused about spiritual gifts. Uh, second point, and that's verse uh, 3. Spiritual activity, spiritual experience, spiritual expression is to be constrained or controlled or vetted by the content of biblical truth. Spiritual activity, expression, or experience is to be constrained, controlled by, vetted, and I would say even dictated by biblical truth. And then finally the third truth from verses 4 to 6. There are many gifts. Again, one of the Corinthians' problems is they were just uh, emphasizing two gifts. It's all about tongues, tongues, tongues. Here's a true uh, testimonial. Uh, when I was not a Christian, and you know this when I was age 19, when I went to Westmont College, and I, man, I was wild and crazy. I was a pagan to the core. And God saw fit to put me onto a Christian campus, because I want to go play basketball there, in a dorm room with two born-again, charismatic Christian roommates. 
wild, crazy, ex-recovering Catholic put in the dorm room with these two spirit-filled, tongue-speaking, charismatic Christians and their mothers. Both mothers. I'll never forget that day when I met those mothers. Those mothers were quite concerned about me by virtue of what I had hanging on the wall already in the dorm room. One mother said, I don't want to leave. Can I stay here and sleep here too? I don't want you with this crazy boy. Anyway, those mothers started praying for me 24-7. Anyway, I ended up getting saved two months later. But my brother-in-law had been praying for me for two years. And then as, as soon as I got saved, I started going to the charismatic churches they were going to. Uh, the Vineyard and um, Calvary Chapel and a couple other pretty lively ones, I should say. And so that's all I I thought this was Christianity, baby, bring it on. This is kind of a radical change from the very somber, quiet, reverent, archaic, boring, medieval Roman Catholic. This is kind of like, this is keeping me awake. I don't need three cups of coffee. The music is keeping me awake. Um, so for the first year, all I knew was charismatic Christianity. It was legitimate Christianity. The gospel was preached, but they had a totally different view of the spiritual gifts. And I remember one Sunday when the first time I ever went to the church that I ended up going to for quite some time where the pastor was doing, okay, I'm going to do a series on the spiritual gifts and I want your participation. And he had a big old whiteboard and he said, okay, I'm going to, we're going to brainstorm together and you tell me uh, what this, let's just list the spiritual gifts. What are they? And he's going to write them down and guess what everybody said in unison at the same time. Speaking in tongues. And that was, so that was pretty significant. The entire congregation, when he asked, what are the, there's like over 20 spiritual gifts. He says, what are the spiritual gifts? And they all say together speaking in tongues and he writes it down. And they, what are the others? And they were really struggling. But I found that to be true, that that was a dominant, preeminent gift. That is exactly parallel to what was going on in Corinth. There's 20, there are gifts that maybe some of the Corinthians didn't even know existed. And that's also true of Christians. Christians join this church, and sometimes, every time we'll ask, what is your spiritual gift, do you know? And many times, believers will say, well, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not the preacher, because you won't let me, Pastor Cliff. Um, so, I don't have a gift. And then I'm supposed to feel sorry for him. But anyway, um, it is true that Christians can maybe have, they have, every believer has a gift, but sometimes there's an issue of discovery. Maybe they haven't discovered because they haven't been given an opportunity to use it or haven't been taught. That's very important. So we're going to cover all of that as we look through uh, the scriptures today. Uh, so, But the point was that it's not just about speaking in tongues and the uh, prophecy. But here's, here is a, I got to say this. Because the point is that Paul makes, there are many gifts. I didn't even emphasize that point. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, he says, there are varieties of gifts. There are varieties of gifts. There are, he says it three times. Corinthians, it's not just about two. It's not just tongues and prophecy. There are many, and you're forgetting most of them. The service ones. There are many. There's a variety. Very important because God is a God of variety, isn't he? God is a God of diversity. God is a God of plurality, diversity, variety, and yet God has perfect unity. That's how the church needs to be. Variety, diversity, plurality, and unity. And the Corinthians were not unified in how they were using the gifts. They were being divisive to one another. There are many gifts. And so, and then another couple of subpoints there. All gifts are equally valuable, miraculous, and spiritual. Isn't that cool? All gifts. Maybe you've got a gift that, uh, is doesn't get showcased and nobody ever sees it. As a matter of fact, maybe somebody doesn't even know what you do for the church. You go to our church. You're a member. Really? What do you do? I never see you do anything. And then God knows they are faithful behind the scenes, worshiping God using their gift that is just as valuable, important, miraculous, supernatural, and needed to the body of Christ. We are not the judges. Absolutely. But just because you can't see my heart, does that mean it's not important to my body? Can't see my brain, therefore it's not important. Those vital organs. So all gifts, all believers, all members are equally valuable, miraculous, and spiritual and needed in the body of Christ for its growth and maturity. And then finally, uh, I already said this, with diversity and plurality, uh, there should still be unity in the use of the gifts because God is all of those. He is diverse, he is plural. And yet he is perfectly unified. We need to follow his example. With that, let's go to prayer and ask the Lord to Help us to that end. Father, we do thank you for our time together. Thank you for the glorious Christmas season and reminders we have 
in a unique way through our local church to celebrate that, to celebrate you, Lord Jesus, your birth, your amazing life, your substitutionary death, your powerful resurrection, and now the fact that you are a, a savior, you're still a savior, uh, seeking sinners to call them to repentance, to save their soul, to transform them. We thank you for that awesome truth. Thank you that once a person is saved, you give them the gift of the Holy Spirit, and with that comes spiritual gifts. Thank you that every Christian has valuable and vital spiritual gifts to use to help the local church body grow. God, help us to discover more and more of that great truth over the next several weeks as we trust that you're going to be our teacher. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.